And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Who knows if we'll have many more of those. Independence Day's left unless we start fighting for the survival of our great republic. And Ivan is one man. I We had a great discussion the other day. Um, this is one guy that I am really excited about getting to know and becoming friends with because, tell you, Thumper, this guy believes exactly what we do. He's cut from the same cloth. Uh, maybe he's even more so. And all I can say is that this is going to be a, a pleasure of a discussion. As I said earlier, in case we just had uh, viewers join us, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired uh, Ivan E. Raiklin is a former Green Beret. He's a constitutional attorney, served 25 years in the DOD Intel and Special Operations communities. Uh, he has uh, been in the Middle East. He was uh, served as a Green Beret commander countering ISIS, uh, Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, MS-13 in Central America. Uh, he has served in, um, uh, speaks five languages fluently, and uh, most recently he was an instructor at the Joint Military Intelligence Training Center teaching the U.S. intelligence intel community and international partners about intel analysis. This is going to be a great discussion. Um, Ivan has, uh, incidentally, if you've uh, gathered from his name, he's of uh, Russian lineage, his background, his father uh, experienced living under the Soviet system and escaped. So, He's the kind of patriot, the the second gener generation patriots that people who have lived under communists uh, are generating those kind of offspring. And all I can say is that this is going to be a good discussion. Ivan, welcome to the program. I hope I didn't uh, blow, blow so much uh, uh, smoke up there that uh, you're ready to <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> It's well, great to see it's good you. To have, thanks for having me on the show. I guess that's it. I mean, you, you did it. 
Yeah, no, well. Thanks, Dan, for having me. Absolutely an honor. Uh, it's always great to actually have a conversation with someone like yourself that has done the deep, sti- deep dive on the deep state as well. You probably have, have a little bit more context than I do, and hopefully I can bring some value into this conversation with the research that I've put together. Well, I think you've got on the ground uh, context that a lot of us that I read, I I interview, I have a lot of contacts. A good friend of mine was the head of Marine uh, uh, Intelligence in the Middle East. He, uh, you may even know him, uh, Bill Cote, uh, Colonel Bill Cote from the U.S. Marine Corps. But he also uh, taught at the... Uh, uh, Marine Intelligence Training Center. He was the commandant at, uh, uh, let's see, it's uh, called uh, Dam Lake, I believe, in uh, Virginia. So anyway, uh, right outside of Quantico. So I have a lot of conversations with Bill. He and I have been friends forever. And uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I was just an EM. So uh, I, uh, I I spent my two years. Uh, it was during uh, Vietnam, but they had the uh, uh, the intelligence to send me to D.C. and uh, show me how rotten D.C. was in 1972. So uh, that that's pretty good uh, background on me. Anyway, you've got you've got all the chutzpah. You've been in the Middle East. You served many tours you've uh, been involved for a long time i just i want to hear what you think about the deep state because i know you feel very much like i do we have lost so many of our constitutional liberties and we've got so many idiots that are out there trying to promote this crap rather than defend against it and i just can't believe that we have that many traitors in our country but Apparently, there's a significant number of them anyway. Yeah, so I think it would be fitting, considering that we're running up on 247 years of our nation's history coming up on Tuesday, to do a general overview of where we are as a nation in terms of our institutions, how those institutions have been captured by the global community, and I'm going to go into details depending, I guess we have a couple hours to really flesh this out, so I'm, I'm happy for that opportunity. So really what I'd like to do is contextualize the last 250 years politically, legally, as well as contextualize it in, in the globe, and then go into deep analysis over the last, we'll even kick it off the last 50 years. I know you said you enlisted in 1972. As I explain these things, I would like you to just think back of where you were and what you were doing uh, in 1972 and even more so in 1973 to be able to shed even more context since you were around and can remember back then. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't have the luxury of, of actually having experienced that because uh, I came to this earth on in 1976. But as we go through that, just listen in and, and I want to hear your input as well uh, as we start to essentially dissect the global deep state, or some people call it the elite state, and then also specifically the national deep state actors, uh, the uniparty. And I like to identify them by individual, time, place, and the transgression that they conducted on we the people. And once we identify who our threats and enemies are, both foreign and domestic, we can shape 
ideas, policy, plans, whatever you want to call it, to be able to start to leverage the influence and power, the limited influence and power we have individually and then collectively as organized, uh, constitutionally minded folks to be able to push back, ground up, to retake and, and claw back our rights where they should be and essentially bring the elite state and deep state actors to heal. So with that- I'd, I'd, I would, Ivan, I would suggest I'd rather than bring them to heal, I would like to bring them in front of a courts martial uh, because it includes people like the commanders in chief and uh, put them on trial for what they've tried to do against our constitution. Uh, I, I think, you know, that frankly, the only way that the world's going to learn a lesson from this is if we actually punish them equal to the transgressions that they've created. And I absolutely agree with you. Actually, I would take it another step. I would be honored once we finish off to be uh, selected as the, or I guess appointed as the secretary of retribution to make sure that we actually conduct the necessary and requisite consequences for those criminal uh, crime is not even a, uh, it's not enough. Uh, I think we're on the same sheet of music, but uh, I don't want to say what I'm going to do yet. If we, if we could just ju real quick, mm -hmm. I want to give like a, a basically one to two minute overview of, of what people need to consider as they're going into, you know, 247 and 250 years of our country's history. So I like to start off like when I do my speeches and whatnot. And, uh, you know, July 4th, 1776, is that that's essentially when United States beta version was created, right? Where we had 13 colonies reject the tyrannical government and overreach of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, right? And then fast forward to 1781, only several years later, where we created a Articles of Confederation. And even at that point, the 13 articles did not really create a national or federal government. You still had 13 states and all authority that was granted those states came from the people, uh, which came from obviously our God-given rights. It wasn't until 1787 when New Hampshire became the necessary three quarters of the state's legislatures of the 13, which would have been nine out of the 13, to ratify the Constitution, thus creating, you know, moving from beta version to 1.0 to what is now the 2.0 version. Uh, and I would even push forward to, in uh, that's 1787. And then later, a few years later, we had our first 10 amendments ratified. And that would be, you would call it, you know, if you're a tech guy, uh, America 2.1. And then since then, we've shaped our rules accordingly with an additional 17 amendments. Remember, there are seven articles to the Constitution and 27 amendments at this point in time. Not a big document, but it is important because it is our rule book on how we as citizens and those that you know live in the United States are bound by on what is expected of each other. And more importantly, what we allow our federal by creating a federal government through the states what we allow our federal government to do when that federal government breaches that trust and breaches that contract with us, it is imperative on us to do the necessary and requisite body check. And sometimes 
it needs to be at least at the same level as what the lawlessness that is being conducted on us, it needs to be rejected in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, obviously the first couple of decades. And then uh, I'd like to say that we are currently in this trilateral state of the 1770s meets the 1860s meets the 1960s. So 1770s, I don't think I need to rehash that, but that was when we rejected the previous tyrannical government known as the Revolutionary War. And then in the 1860s, we had a split amongst states. You know, The big issue was national versus states' rights. And at that point in time, we had a civil war. Uh, we shall see how things play out, how they want to push us. And again, these are a lot of foreign actions occurring in order to foment and stoke the divisions that are being created and manufactured uh, amongst our neighbor, you know, you, myself, mm -hmm. my family member, my neighbors, et cetera. And then fast forward to the 1960s. We have to remember that in the 1960s, at the height of the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union using the Yuri Bezmenov model of ideological subversion via the KGB in order to infiltrate, disrupt, and subvert the ideology of what was valuable to the United States and literally flip it on its head so that, you know, left is right, right is left, up is down, down is up. And they were doing that at a much smaller scale since we didn't have the digital ecosystem and technology to be able to uh, replicate a lot of what was done by the KGB in the 60s and 70s against the United States uh, through ideological subversion of the, the universities, the schools, the media, the press. And if you want to deep dive on that, there's a couple hour interview <laughs> that was done with Yuri Bezmenov. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. And yeah, it goes very... into detail about how a defector from the KGB explains specifically how that was done and its phases. And if you don't have the two hours, there's a 13 minute version. And if you don't have 13 minutes, then I mean, you're a lost cause, but still, mm -hmm. uh, if you have a couple minutes, I think there's a really short clip uh, on, on the different internet websites that kind of explains the phases of ideological subversion as outlined by essentially one of the senior most KGB defectors. Now, amidst that, 1973, let's just say 1972, 73. In 1972, in November, you had an election that was being held for the United States Senate in the state of Delaware one of the original colonies, right? One of the original states. And the individual that was elected at that time was a junior senator from Delaware, which 50 years later has now been sitting in that position in a political position that is essentially 50 years is over one-fifth, right? 250, 247. Mm -hmm. It's one-fifth of our nation's history, 20%, that this individual has been in power and accumulated power based on relationships, not only legitimate relationship building and creation of influence, but in addition to that, through lawless, criminal, RICO-style influence peddling, not only domestically, but internationally. And it's starting to come to a head, as we're seeing over the last few months, finally, with this new 118th Congress. So let's fast forward. What did this individual by the name of Joseph Robinette uh, Biden, uh, when he was originally taking office, 
what what has he done over these last 50 years in order to accumulate the necessary influence and power to be able to ruthlessly, belligerently steal a presidential election? Okay, let's go into that. And if I, again, all of what I'm presenting, I'm gonna I'm gonna delineate my assessment with the facts and the evidence as set forth, and I will also try to provide. Uh, you know, where you can find the pieces of evidence sure. that I use to support my assertions, hypotheses, whatever you want to call it, theories for some of the low IQ folks out, that are out there, right? Let's let's go with the uh, U.S. Senate. So he was a U.S. Senator. And the next question to ask is, which committees did he serve on? And which committees did he serve on that could have had some consequential impact in our nation's history? Well, when you look at it and you look at the congressional record, this guy by the name of Biden ended up becoming a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. The Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, let's just say in the 1970s, in the run up to say 1978, when the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed, one of the members of the Senate Judiciary would have had a significant say uh, not as much as the chairman, but still would have had a say on what gets placed in and how that process proceeds with the FISA Act and the mm -hmm. FISA court, right? So coincidence, right? That's one piece of coincidence that, you know, your show is called Connecting the Dots. Let's connect a few dots that's related to this. That's the way to do it. Yep, okay? that's the way to do it. So the FISA court, remember, 73, January is when he takes, swears in, Five years later, he's kind of leveraged themselves a little bit, right? And then it's going into the creation of the FISA law, which allows, remember, to contextualize. The reason why the FISA law was created was because the Federal Bureau of Lying, excuse me, FB Lie, I, I, I mispronounced it, sorry. <laughs> uh, Federal Bureau of Instigation is the organization that essentially since its inception in 1908 has been there in order to create a national capability, which was not there before, to be able to empower the federal national government to essentially steal power from individuals and states mm -hmm. to be able to conduct lawless activity that protects itself, particularly those that are in the highest ranking positions of that organization. One individual that comes to mind is a guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover. Now, when we're talking about deep state, time on target is usually the biggest indicator of you being a big, big state act or a deep state actor. So mm -hmm. if you look at the history books, how long did J. Edgar Hoover serve as the director of the FBI? Do you know offhand, Dan? Well, I, I would say it was right at uh, 55 years. Pretty close. So we're talking about 48 years, similar 48. to what this guy, Joseph Robinette, now it's pronounced Jiden because of his uh, role as the Chinese Communist Party's ambassador to the United States <laughs> squatting in our White House. But nonetheless, it's similar in terms of duration. Again, at that time, pretty much about a quarter, 25 percent of our nation's history. This guy was the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And that period essentially transitioned in the 70s. Uh, but bottom line is, as he accumulated all of this power, and there are many 
folks that have exposed the COINTEL Pro program, where you essentially had the FBI going after political opponents that they weren't able to control in the form of, oh, I don't know, the Kennedys, but more specifically, the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world. And it's there's evidence to support and showcase that they didn't stop at discrediting and uh, embarrassing individuals. But if you look at the Wikipedia entry, it also includes targeting folks up to and including assassinations, okay? Mm -hmm. These are not my words. So you can't come after me for those words. You can come after the Wikipedia article of which I cite that talks about the COINTEL Pro program and the uh, article referring to the FBI, okay? So fast forward. The FISA Act was created so that it would set some limitation on our Federal Bureau of Instigation to essentially have to get a court warrant. They have to present it to the court in order to be able to conduct what they claim to be legal lawful spying on American citizens where it wouldn't be considered a violation of that American Ivan, we yes, just sir. lost. Oh, okay, you're you're fine. We lost your sound for just a second there. Go ahead. Yeah, it's probably. Others want to go ahead and interject themselves because this is a little bit too <laughs> truthful for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, it happens on our show. That's all right. It happens. <laughs> so, this court, the FISA law, was created in order to limit, to at least create the facade of limiting the FBI from being able to get, you know, pen searches, war, uh, we call it, uh, surveillance tools in order to go after American citizens. And in that law, it basically specified that it should only be used for those Americans that are interacting with potential foreign uh, intelligence and forest, foreign terrorist organizations. Okay. Now, that's, let's set that aside just for a little bit, and let's go on to how the FISA court, the judges, how that was created and who those FISA court judges were that ended up deciding whether or not to approve the J. Edgar Hoovers of the world and later on the Chris Rays of the world mm -hmm. and the James, James Comeys of the world uh, requests for the lawful spying on American citizens. Well, if you look at the statute, the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court is the sole authority that decides who will be sitting on that FISA court. Originally, it was envisioned that there will be seven judges on the FISA court to handle these sensitive matters for our national security. Well, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court? when the FISA law was created in 78? Do you recall? No, I don't, actually, but... Um... Warren Berger. Oh, Berger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. and so Warren Berger was appointed by, a few years earlier... Yeah, Nixon. By, yes, a guy by the name of Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. What party was Richard Nix Nixon? Republican. Okay, let's just, just remember that for a second. Mm-hmm. Now let's fast forward. So the original seven FISA judges were appointed by the guy that Richard Nixon appointed. Mm -hmm. So would it be a stretch 
to make the assumption that those judges were not only loyal to the chief justice that appointed them, but by extension through that surrogate, some sort of relationship with Nixon. Would it be a stretch? Not really. Not really. Okay. I would agree mm-hmm. with that. Additionally, I want to mention just to, to be fair, you have to be a sitting federal judge first to be then appointed as an additional duty to serve on the FISA court. So whoever the original president that appointed those judges, that judge would probably have loyalties to that original president as well. Correct. Mm-hmm. You would think. Yeah. Yeah. So let's fast forward. Who was the chief justice after Earl Warren? Appointed by Ronald Reagan. Hmm. William Rehnquist. Was Ronald Reagan also a Republican? That's a rhetorical question. Mm -hmm. And so Rehnquist was the one that appointed the next wave of FISA judges, right? Now let's fast forward to the next chief justice appointed by George W. Bush in 2005. Who was that? The current chief justice, Mm -hmm. John Roberts. Mm -hmm. Now, if he was appointed as chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 2005, based on the staggered nature of the, the, uh, the FISA court judge appointments, it would have taken about seven years for Chief Justice John Roberts to go ahead and appoint all the judges on the FISA court. Mm-hmm. Now, this is pretty important because let's look at it this way. Not only was he appointing the seven originally envisioned by the FISA law, but in 2001, after the attacks on 9-11, we had another intervening law that expanded the FISA court, and that was known mm-hmm. as the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. So the Patriot Act was expanded so that or it expanded the court from seven judges to 11 judges. One question asked, who of a consequential figure was on the House Judiciary Committee when the Patriot Act was being written? Mm-hmm. And who was one of the co-authors? Good sir, Mr. Happel. Mm-hmm. Who do you think that may have been? Well, I would uh, think it would have been Joe Biden. Well, no, 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 no. I'm talking about on the House side of things, United oh, States House, House of Representatives. Side. Oh, we already okay. discussed the Joe Biden Senate Judiciary. And he later <laughs> okay. became he later became the chairman of the judiciary as he was mm. attempting to uh, ask questions of the great acting Chief Justice currently, Clarence Thomas, mm-hmm. on the House side. You had a guy that later becomes the governor of Indiana and later becomes the failed vice president. Mm -hmm. Who would that be? Uh, Pence. Yeah, so Mike Pence served for 12 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. Ten of those years he served on judiciary. Also, he served on the judiciary at the time when the Patriot Act was written. Again, these are all coincidences, but I'm just here to connect the dots with you. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. You you so, do great credit to the show. <laughs> so, let's move on. Mike Pence was elected as a member of Congress the same election year as George Bush and Dick Cheney 
Okay. A few years later in 2005, George Bush appoints Chief Justice Roberts. The same year he had, he appoints Rod Rosenstein to be the U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland. Fast forward, Rod Rosenstein is the only U.S. Attorney of the 94 federal districts or the federal U.S. Attorneys that remains in that position when Obama comes in. What's the operative term we like to use when there's a significant time on target overlapping administrations? It rhymes with deep and ends in state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. So, all right. So uh, I'm almost done contextualizing here before we get into the meat and potatoes. That was quick, right? 1776. Yeah. We're already at 2005 ish. <laughs> well, you hit a lot of stuff that I honestly had not even considered. So uh, keep doing it because this yeah, is absolutely. great. Absolutely. Now, some people could argue I, I'm, you know, picking and choosing my facts and evidence, uh, but I would like to hear a response from Mike Pence and the other per people that I mentioned in order to clarify it. We haven't had that opportunity yet. All right. So 2005. So I said seven years it would have taken for this whole FISA court to be appointed by Chief Justice John Roberts. That would have put us at 2012. Okay. So in 2012, uh, let's see here. Who's president at the time? Obama. We have Rod Rosenstein over there in place. And then let's fast forward some more to 2015. So 2015, President Trump goes ahead and uh, actually, no, that's before that. In 2014, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency is told, hey, buddy, you're speaking too much truth to power. Uh, we don't need you anymore. Why don't you go ahead and resign or actually retire? And that guy's name is General Michael T. Flynn. Okay. Fast forward the next year, Donald Trump becomes a candidate. And then let's fast forward to July of 2016. This is where it's very important. We got to listen closely. So in July of 2016 is when I argue, well, you know what? Let me ask you this. Under what condition would the Republican National Committee agree to supporting Donald Trump, a candidate that pulls off the nomination in the primary, someone that has not been leveraged or influenced or have has any leverage over the Republican Party, nor does the Republican Party have uh, kind of influence and leverage over him. What would make it interesting for the Republican National Committee to essentially go all in to support a candidate that had received basically from 30 to 35 percent of the elect uh, of the vote throughout the country? Because remember, there were 17 or 18 candidates. So the other 16 received about 65 to 70% of the vote collectively and president or candidate Trump at the time was only receiving about 30 to 35% uh, in each state. Now, granted it was much more than any other candidate, right? But nonetheless, when you contextualize it, about 65 to 70% of Republicans that voted did not vote for Donald Trump. That's a little bit of leverage that the RNC has, right? If they were able to kind of leverage all those individuals. So then wouldn't it be important for them in order to have leverage and control over 
candidate Trump something like having a say in who would be his vice presidential pick mm. would come to mind. Gee, that sounds kind of like Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, doesn't it? Wait, what? <laughs> I, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so for those that don't recall, George H.W. Bush, former director of the CIA, mm -hmm. later vice president for Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Was he the deep state handler back then for Ronald Reagan, similar to what Mike Pence later becomes as the deep state's handler of Donald J. Trump. I don't know. I think so, because I'm going to share some. God, that's a good, that's a good deep dive because not only are you talking about something that's very important for people to uh, contextualize, but you are doing it in an election now where Pence is one of the candidates. I'll we explain. need to know the truth. So go ahead. Keep oh, going. absolutely. I'm going to make the argument. And right now you're not going to believe me because he polls at 0% and his charisma is at 0%. Mm -hmm. But he is essentially on lock to secure at a minimum 275 electoral votes, as well as the primary to secure the electoral heist in 2024, meaning Mike Pence. But let's let's really? pause that for a second. Wow. Stick around till the end. <laughs> I'll make the I'll make the case of that's what they're planning on doing. But I always like to create a plan to counter that. Okay, so we're in 2015. Or excuse me, 2016. So the Speaker of the House back then, Paul Ryan, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the 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 RNC Chairman Reince Priebus. Wouldn't you think those three would have a say? and some influence and, to, and having a sit-down meeting with Donald Trump to say, hey, buddy, the only way we will support you is under the following condition. You take Mike Pence as your vice president. And I would like to remind everyone that a president is not able to fire a vice president. Mm -hmm. However, a vice president is able to constitutionally fire a president. How? Let's take a look at the 25th Amendment. So if the vice president, due to some subjective thought in his head, along with the rest of the a majority of the cabinet, decides, oh, this president or commander-in-chief is unfit to serve. Mm -hmm. Look to your left, look to your right, and you think to yourself, wait, hey, Mitch McConnell, the people that Trump is appointing to be on the cabinet that could potentially 25th Amendment him, if they're loyal to Trump, I think they just need to remain as acting secretary of et cetera so that mm. they don't really have the weight of a legitimate vote so that we have the ability to kind of argue in the courts that, oh, this person is not able to vote. Now, those people that are confirmed, appointed by Trump, that Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, mm -hmm. who, the, who, was at, who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, goes ahead and tees up for Trump to appoint. Well, then those individuals, if they're loyal to the deep state, why don't we just go ahead and confirm them? Because now we have an additional vote 
Hmm. for a potential 25th Amendment mechanism against Donald J. Trump should we need to use it if he doesn't listen to us. Is this a stretch for these conversations to occur? You know why it's not a stretch? Because Rod Rosenstein, remember early on in 2017, what was he doing? He was talking about 25th Amendmenting President Trump behind the scenes, and who was he using potentially as his surrogates to put a wire on them to be able to collect information uh, so that they could put it together to make it look like there's sufficient cause for a 25th Amendment removal. I argue that those individuals were likely Catherine Seaman. Do you know who Catherine Seaman is? No. You know why? Because Paul Ryan's Fox News won't cover it. <laughs> this is who Catherine Seaman is. She worked for Andy McCabe over at the FBI. Do you know who Andy McCabe is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, deputy director of the FBI. Well, Catherine Seaman, guess who she's married to? I won't prolong it. I'll just tell you. Yeah, just tell me. A guy by the name of Joshua Pitcock. And if you're wondering who Joshua Pitcock is, Joshua Pitcock was the chief of staff for the nation's beloved Michael R. Pence. Oh, really? Now, let me let that sink in. Let, let's let that marinate. I'm going to reverse kind of a... Wow, this is great. Mike Pence's chief of staff, Joshua Pitcock, who also served with him when he was where? <laughs> in the House on the Judiciary Committee. Don't you think that they probably have some relationships with the with the executive branch entity that they have to provide oversight over, meaning the DOJ mm -hmm. and the FBI? Wow. As a side note, it, for the 12 years that he was in the House, Mike Pence, those were the same 12 years that the director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, was the director of the FBI. Mm -hmm. So does the judiciary have the role of providing oversight? over the FBI lie? It sure does. It'd be interesting to know what conversations were had during those 12 years and what relationships were made. Because last I checked, Robert Mueller was appointed by Bush. Mm -hmm. So you have the legislative branch basically captured. You have the executive branch with the relationships captured with the same, same kind of click or cabal. And then you have the Article 3 branch of government as it applies to this, the FISA court appointed by the same interests, right? The same Bush, Cheney, Pence, mm -hmm. globalist interests. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's let that marinate a little bit. Okay. Marination complete. Let's move on. We have 2016, I, I want to kind of stress this component. So once Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, and Ryan Priebus foisted Pence onto Donald Trump, this is where you start to bring in the Clinton cabal. Now, I'm still not clear whether or not this was done in coordination or in parallel, the right and the left side of the political spectrum. But I'm guessing that it was done in coordination to some level. 
within two weeks, the John Brennans, Jim Comey's of the world, along with, oh, I don't know, the Bruce's and, and Nelly Orr's of the world. You've, you've done the deep dive on these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've certainly covered them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not going to go into details, but let's kind of back up and say the DOJ, the FBI, the National Security State, the 60 scum that provided top cover over the Hunter Biden criminal syndicate laptop, 51 named, nine unnamed, the 39 that unmasked Flynn, many similar names to the 60 that provided top cover to the Hunter Biden laptop, criminal syndicate laptop. So those individuals sprung into action in their official capacities to say, whoa, President Trump, or excuse me, Donald Trump, just secured the nomination for the Republican Party. And we have zero leverage over this guy. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Well, let's go ahead and launch Crossfire Hurricane, the illegal spying on Trump campaign. How do we know it was illegal? Well, guess what? Seven years later, John Durham agrees to it. Mm-hmm. John Durham being the cover-up committee that still... <laughs> even though he was representing the uniparty's interests so that no one would face consequences, he still had to say that. Yeah. He had to admit it. Sorry, yeah. folks. Yep. This was totally raw dog illegal. Mm-hmm. So let's go back 2016 within two weeks of Trump nominating Pence. So July 15th, I believe. And then ju- late July is when crossfire hurricane was launched on paper, which means that there were conversations, probably, maybe days, maybe two weeks. Coincidence? I'm just connecting the dots. I'm just connecting the dots. And in (laughs) fact, I think I would suggest maybe two months before. Yeah. Yeah, because that's part of the deal. They, They are always trying to figure out what might happen. They always play all these different uh, scenarios, plan A, plan B, plan C. So you know that they were planning this for uh, at least a month or two before they got pants on. You're right. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is good. I need to take a little breather there. (laughs) So July. Yeah, we talk about crossfire hurricane, the deep state. No, no, no. Remember. We got to go into each name, date, location, transgression. So, Crossfire Hurricanes launched. Andy McCabe, Jim Comey, what do they do? Director and deputy director, or I should say deputy director and director, respectively, mm-hmm. are essentially asking for two of their homies. Well, I should say one of their homies. Joseph Pientka III, whom you don't even probably know who that mm-hmm. is because his name was Memory Hold, and Lindsey Graham was part of the cover-up to make sure that that name was never released since he was the Senate Judiciary Chairman. We'll get to that when we get to 2020. So anyway, in 2016, July, Joseph Pientka III. You'll find nothing on him on the internet. Mm-hmm. He goes and does what? He's told to do a defensive counterintelligence briefing to candidate Trump, Chris Christie's in the room, and Mike 
uh, excuse me, General Michael Flynn mm-hmm. with the secondary purpose of observing the mannerisms of General Flynn anytime the word Russia was mentioned to determine whether or not that there was collusion with Russia, Russia, Russia. Mm. Let's pause there real quick. So you have four people at this meeting, Joe Pientka, the guy representing the FBI as part of Crossfire Hurricane to do the initial assessment in order to be able to create the necessary predicate to go ahead and continue to spy. He goes, you know, does the defensive counterintelligence briefing in the room is Chris Crispy. Hmm. One thing to note here, Chris Christie goes way back with Christopher Ray. And it was Chris Christie that teed up Christopher Ray in order to become the FBI director after hmm. President Trump fires James, James Comey. And another person that I argue was involved in the convincing of President Trump, which only President Trump and Mike Pence can attest to, is Mike Pence probably also teed that up for Jim, or excuse me, for Chris Ray to become the director of the FBI. When you put that together, you start to see why he's acting the way he is. Mm-hmm. All right, let's pause there. So in that defensive counterintelligence briefing, Joseph Pienka third comes back, writes up his little document, right? Assessment. And then what happens? November 2016, President Trump wins. Oh my gosh. What does the deep state do? Well, four days after the inauguration, January 24th, 2017, Jim Comey and, and McCabe send over two guys, mm-hmm. P.D. Pablo Struck and Joseph Pientka III over to the White House to interview the only guy that will be able to immediately expose the Uniparty's unlawful spying on the Trump campaign mm-hmm. and then the Trump presidency. Now they have to cover up their original transgression. Mm-hmm. How do they do that? Bill Priestap in his notes writes, do we actually, by the way, head of counterintelligence at the time for the FBI, do we want to interview General Flynn to get him to lie or just to get him fired? Was what he wrote in his notes. That's in his notes, huh? Yep. And that's all for public consumption based on the filings by Sidney Powell when she was representing General Flynn. Uh, that's all court documents that were later uh, disclosed by U.S. Attorney Jensen, helped with that process from Missouri. He was a U.S. attorney from Missouri at the time. Okay. So you have the, these are some key names that'll come up later. So the general, so the director of the FBI, Jim Comey, the deputy director, Andy McCabe, supervisory special agent, Peter Strzok, supervisory special agent one is his nickname moniker in all the filings. Guy by the name of Joseph Pienka III is his real name. You have 
Catherine Seaman we talked about. And then we have the lover, Lisa Page. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So Joe Pianca III wants to write up his FD-302. And again, only he is the one that is going to be able to tell the truth on this. I suspect that he wrote one up. And the one he wrote up did not implicate Flynn in anything. Nothing there. January 24th, 2017. So within five days, you're supposed to write that up. But what happens? That original, what's called the FD-302, is nowhere to be found. It's not until August of 2017 that one is written in collaboration with Lisa Page and Andrew McCabe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So amidst, so this is the 2017 timeframe, uh, January to, to August. What are some other things that are going on? Well, guess what? January 5th, before this, the case was going to be closed on Flint. But the following day, or 4th, I believe. But the following day, they want to reopen it. Amidst all of this, you have, this is where we need to find out what exactly happened. And only Joe Pienka III can tell us and he's hiding out in the San Francisco field office as the head of counterintelligence at the FBI still to this day, not saying a word. So for personal preservation, I get it. I understand why he's doing that, but for the good of the country, it's mm-hmm. unacceptable what, that he's hiding, but we'll get to that. So 2017, you have Joe Pienka III basically saying, you know what? We need to vet some of these sources and this and that. Also, you have Carter Page. Remember Carter Page? Mm-hmm. There's manufactured evidence that is placed into what's known as the Woods file. You yeah. go into the FISA law, you go into the procedures of the FBI, and you start to see that there's an there's a pretty robust process that needs to be followed in order to get a warrant of a FISA judge to approve a warrant to be able to spy on an American. Well, guess who they spied on? And they did it illegally unlawful. How do we know this? Well, the IG report by Horowitz, the subsequent, uh, the uh, Durham stuff that came out, right? But we knew that. I mean, if you've done the research earlier, you saw that. So the original Woods file presented with the FISA request, warrant request, to the FISA judge, who were the individuals involved in the process? Hmm. Do you think it would have been the people that were running Crossfire Hurricane? That's probably a good bet. Who were Mm -hmm. they? The director, the deputy director, so Comey? McCabe, Rod Rosenstein would have had to sign off on it as deputy attorney general. Mm-hmm. Okay. Remember, remember the connect the dots who appointed mm-hmm. him Bush, right? Mm-hmm. Relationship. So who else? Pete struck. Yes. Mm-hmm. And by this time, Oh yeah. Pete struck. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the woods file? 
And then when Joe Pientka III testifies in August of 2020 before the Senate Judiciary Committee and is asked, what happened to that? Where's the original Woods file? Um, his attorney says, don't answer that question, basically. Well, answer it this way. We only have access to the reconstructed Woods file mm. that was used. To me, when somebody says reconstructed, yeah. that automatically means the original was destroyed. Mm -hmm. So you're using the reconstructed Woods file. So if on one end, you have corrupt actors that are teeing up false information to the FISA court, and on the receiving end, you have a FISA court Holy, doesn't matter which judge appointed by John Roberts, who is a devout anti-Trumper. You see some bias on top of bias on top of bias mm -hmm. occurring for a potential outcome that is favorable for the political interests of every single person involved from the request of the FISA creation of the Woods file to the request of the FISA to the approval of the FISA. Dirty as sin. So then the question is, was the FISA court defrauded? Or was it defrauded and did the FISA court judge do something maybe unethical, immoral, and potentially even more grave mm -hmm. in addition to the defrauding of the FISA court? I'll let the viewers answer that question for themselves. Mm-hmm. So you have the entire FISA ecosystem and the entities that are providing oversight over the FISA court is what? The House Judiciary and the mm -hmm. Senate Judiciary Committee committees. Namely, Lindsey Graham over at Senate Judiciary. So wait, is Ivan saying that Lindsey Graham would have known the most sensitive <laughs> stuff related to the FISA court and the spying on the Trump campaign. You bet you he probably, he mm -hmm. almost certainly knew that mm -hmm. this was going on and they had to create the leverage to be able to box in Trump so that he would promulgate policies, laws, procedures, et cetera, executive orders with that leverage in mind because they didn't have it before. Mm-hmm. You know, you're answering something that I've questioned for years now, and that is how Lindsey Graham, as scummy as he is, managed to uh, kind of slide under the bar as far as Trump was concerned. Under you're the bill bar? Is that what you said? Yeah, under the bill bar. Yep. Oh, yeah. Wait, who appointed Bill Barr as the attorney general the first time he was attorney general? <laughs> Dan, do you know? On the first time? Yeah. Yeah. Bush. Bush, yeah. So who yeah. is he loyal to? Yeah. Bush or Trump? Good question. Isn't it intriguing? Let's go into this mm -hmm. one next. Isn't it quite intriguing wow. that in May of 2017, when Jim Comey was fired and somebody teed up Robert Mueller to be interviewed by President Trump to take on the role as the director of the FBI to replace Jim Comey, 
remember, Robert Mueller was the FBI director for appointed by Bush. Bush, yeah. Who teed him up to be the FBI director? Probably wasn't Bush directly. It was one of his surrogates, probably by the name of what Chris would you Christie. Guess? Chris Christie. No, 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 Mueller. <laughs> I'm talking about Mueller. Oh, Mueller. Okay. Hmm. Lindsey Graham. You, Mike, our beloved Mikey Pence. Oh, probably okay. teed him up. If I'm wrong, Mikey, please reach out or make a public statement to correct the record. Hmm. I don't want to be wrong. I like to be corrected. So Mikey Pence tees up, I argue, Robert Mueller on behalf of the Bush-Cheney syndicate, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Trump says, nah, I don't want Mueller. He's got early, early stages dementia. Don't need that. All right, so what happens next? The very next day. Robert Mueller is appointed as special counsel to start investigating Trump by whom? Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein. Yeah. The, you see how this works? Mm -hmm, I'm getting it. <laughs> is yeah. it starting to make sense? Mm -hmm. You don't believe me in my timeline. Do your own no, research. No, I do. I do believe you in your timeline. No, I'm saying if anybody disagrees and thinks my timeline is off or wrong, please. Do the same research that I've done. Mm -hmm. And so Rod Rosenstein appoints the special counsel, Robert Mueller, in order to be able to ensure that there's the necessary leverage to be able to be to handle President Trump and to keep him in the box. Wow. Right? Let's fast forward. Wait a second. I forgot a few names. The general counsel of the FBI that signed off on Crossfire Hurricane to be conducted is a guy by the name of Jim Baker, mm -hmm. the senior supervisory intelligence analyst on Crossfire Hurricane, the illegal spying on Trump, right, and everybody around him, a guy by the name of Brian Auten. Mm -hmm. Remember these names. Brian Auten, supervisory intelligence analyst, the senior ops guy, is Joseph Pienka III, and above them you got Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Andy McCabe, Jim Comey, and uh, obviously Catherine Seaman coordinating, I'm sure, with her husband, Joshua Pitcock, at the behest of Mikey Pence, right? Mm -hmm. and again, I'm just, you know, I'm guessing that that might be occurring, right? Mm-hmm probably more than a guess and probably more than low probability, low confidence, and more than even chance assessment. <laughs> so you have those names that I listed were involved in the spying that subsequent to that wanted to make sure that their legal activity would not be disclosed. So what do they do in order to be able to get themselves out of a bind? I'll tell you what they did. Jim Baker goes over and becomes one of the senior attorneys over at Twitter 1.0 to start the censorship scheme <laughs> in the run-up to the electoral heist of 2020. 
Joe Pantka the third is already waiting for Jim Baker at Twitter. Well, I should say in San Francisco, because Joseph Pantka the third is now have has been reassigned to the San Francisco field office to be the senior counterintelligence dude, or also known as supervisory special agent which means he's probably the number three guy in the entire field office. Just to contextualize, the San Francisco field office has jurisdiction over what? Every single company in the big tech landscape. Mm. Twitter, Facebook, mm -hmm. Insta, LinkedIn. And then, you see, and then you wonder, why is all this censorship wow. happening so coordinated and it's so mm -hmm. effective and it's so synchronized? Yeah, and why is the FBI in the middle of all of it, too? I mean, the FBI they, yeah, was right the supervisors the of their surrogates of big, in big tech. So I didn't mention where Brian Otten went. Mm -hmm. Are you taking notes, Dan? Yeah, I am, actually, yeah. <laughs> Brian Otten who was the supervisory intelligence analyst for Crossfire Hurricane, ends up becoming the SIA, it's known as, supervisory intelligence analyst for the Foreign Influence Task Force at headquarters FBI, which is the entity that's charged with coordinating the interagency to be able to identify foreign influence into the U.S., Conversation. Mm -hmm. Translation? Election interference. In <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He is there to make sure that the Biden criminal syndicate is protected under the guise of there's going to be Russian disinformation campaign, also known as it has all the earmarks of a Russian information campaign, meaning the Hunter Biden criminal syndicate laptop. Okay. So while Brian Otten is providing top cover at headquarters, he's coordinating with his old buddy, Joe Pienka, the former ops guy on cross by hurricane over in San Francisco. And one of Pienka's employees, Elvis Chan, who was identified in the Twitter files release and also who was identified as part of the lawsuit of Missouri versus Biden for the censorship scheme of which the Missouri AG at the time, Eric Schmidt, excuse me, uh, yeah, Mr. Senator, now Senator Schmidt and, uh, and the AG of Louisiana by the name of Mr. Landry, they filed a lawsuit of which Elvis Chan is in there as the central figure and coordinating from the San Francisco field office with the basically general counsel of Twitter 1.0, Jim Baker, to censor anything and everything as it relates to the exposure of the illegal spying on the Trump campaign and every single subsequent cover-up cover to that, to include the Mueller investigation, the... Eric Cheramella whistleblower, along with his attorneys, Andrew Bakaj, Mark Zaid, and Andrew Bakaj's relationship with the Vinmans, with Sean Misko, with John Brennan. Take notes, folks. 
These are all the names that are going to be facing consequences by the Secretary of Retribution immediately, day one. Wow. Trump calls it the Truth and Reconciliation Commission needs to be called the Secretariat of Retribution. Kind of like when he talks about in his uh, in his uh, rallies, mm-hmm. where when he spoke with, I think he said he spoke with Xi and in China, they do what's known as quick trials. Have you heard of that? I have heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have a quick trial with immediate retribution. Mm-hmm. Invest in hemp. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> either that might, or lead might be using a lot of it. Yeah, either that or lead, depending on your choice of execution. Yeah, style. depending on which jurisdiction uh, mm-hmm. that's going to happen in. That's All right, let me pa- let, let me just pause there before I continue. I want to. Do you have any questions thus far? Uh, well, I want, I, hole, I want you to poke holes at anything that I've laid out. No, no, no. I am absolutely fascinated, Ivan, by the way you've connected all these dots in subcommittees, in the FBI, in Congress, in Mike Pence, because I've never felt good about Mike Pence. I never felt like he was there for the right reason. And I will have to tell you, I was one of the delegates at the National Convention that um, nominated Trump for the presidency. And Montana, unusually, Montana actually had 70% uh, uh, voting in favor of Trump over any of the other Republicans. That had to have been the biggest, biggest uh, percentage. Yeah, yeah, it was. Because just generally speaking, he was getting obviously 30 to 35%, which he had the uh, plurality of the vote. And so that garnered him essentially most jurisdictions. It, it gave him all delegates right from that state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was uh, very, very uh, popular in Montana. Very popular. Right, anyway, let, let's go let ahead. Me, you can, yeah, let me add a couple of critical pieces of information. Again, str- you need to understand the structure and the individuals that are involved uh, to, and then connect the dots with them and their relationships. So there's a organization or a, I guess, a group known as the the Gang of Eight. For those that don't know what that is, it's the, so other than the Judiciary Committees, which we just talked about, right, mm-hmm. and what role they have in being able to pierce the secrecy, if you will, of the FISA court and the FISA process. And if they're not looking into exposing the FISA court criminality by the FBI and potentially the judges themselves, um, they're complicit. The other entities that I argue should have known that this illegal spying operation was taking place would have been the Gang of Eight. And that includes the Senate Majority Leader, the Senate Minority Leader, the, chi- the, the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the ranking member known as the vice chair. And then on the House side, the Speaker of the House and the House Minority Leader, as well as the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence ranking member. So at that time, who would have been those individuals? Well, it was Paul Ryan. It was... Uh, Nancy Pelosi, right? Because we had the majority back then. Uh Uh And then on the Intel Committee, it would have been Adam Bullshiff. 
and then Devin Nunes. Those are the four on the House side. The four on the Senate side would have been Schumer, McConnell, Richard Burr, and Mark Warner. Of those eight, only one attempted to expose the truth about what was going on with the illegal spying on the Trump campaign and the illegal FISA, et cetera. That dude was Devin Nunes, mm-hmm. which begs the question, why wasn't Richard Burr, senator from North Carolina, chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, who would have known about essentially everything going on with the FISA, had access to the classified FISA and Woods file. Why did he stay silent? My answer would be, please refer back to our discussion of Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. Exact same thing. Richard Burr and Lindsey Graham were the two that were providing top cover from the legislative branch is my argument, my opinion, based on the evidence that I've seen, they would have had to have known and they were intentionally making sure that the unlawful illegal spying on the Trump campaign continued with no oversight whatsoever Hmm. at the expense of Carter Page's Fourth Amendment and our country's tens of millions of taxpayer dollars because of their hatred for orange man bad mm-hmm. and their high do- high uh you know basically because of their massive amount of TDS trump derangement syndrome well it goes beyond that it actually as you well know it's uh anybody that is an anti-globalist and cares more about this country than they do about their plan to unify the world under their one world government and their globalist utopia uh, is an enemy of the state. Right. And guess what? If you saw the rally in South Carolina, I believe it was yesterday. I did see it. Yeah. And uh, Lindsey Graham is getting the treatment of it. It was almost as though it was funny. The people that were there booing Lindsey Graham. Mm -hmm. Hmm. They're not really that dumb. They're actually very high IQ voters that know exactly what Lindsey Graham represents. And I'm sure that many of them realize that, oh, wait, yeah, I guess Lindsey Graham was the guy that was head of judiciary. He would have been the guy that would have known to expose the illegal conduct of not only the FBI and the DOJ in his role as chair of the judiciary, but also with the FISA court. Instead of going on Maria Bartiromo every day saying, oh, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. How about do something? Mm-hmm. Yep. They got him. Hopefully we, we can flick him like a booger. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, people don't like it when I say that. So I won't say that too many times. I don't know. It, sound, <laughs> it sounded uh, pretty appropriate to me. <laughs> All right. So. That's kind of 2017, 2018, right? 2019, uh, let's go into 2020. So as President Trump's popularity and consolidation of influence and power based on the support, popular national support he was getting, these folks had to continue to escalate their efforts 
and curtailing what President Trump stood for. Enter into the conversation the Wuhan incident. Mm-hmm. Unclear yet if it was intentional or accidental, but we all agree that I it was China inspired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, what else was China inspired? Well, let's think through this. Let's go back to the Yuri Bezmenov model that the KGB and the Soviet Union were almost successful in uh, implementing into the 60s, 70s, and then in the 80s. Well, would it be a stretch to say, hey, if you're a KGB officer, retired, or still currently in, you have books on the shelf, obviously probably all classified, and you're like sifting through here. Hmm. Russia doesn't have the capability really to push back against the West like it used to under the Soviet days. Wouldn't it be nice to advise, train, advise, and equip Chinese Communist Party capabilities so that they can implement what the Soviet Union was trying to do? And we're going to do that through coordinating with their Ministry of Intel, uh, their MSS, Ministry of State Security, and their intelligence services so that Russia can assist China to go ahead and go after the West and deconstruct it, particularly the United States, so that China takes first place and global influence. And potentially, if we can create so much chaos confusion in the United States, Russia can take that second position after China. Would that be of interest for Russia, Mr. Dan? Absolutely. Rhetorical question. I get it. Mm -hmm. But we have to go through that kind of logical thought process. Mm -hmm. And then China, of course, wants to take that global hegemon role. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how does that work? How does that look? Well, back in the day, we didn't have internet. We didn't have TikTok. We didn't have Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, right? All that stuff to be able to manipulate and coerce generations, not not only in over the course of a few years, we could do it by having a complete shutdown, right? Mm-hmm. Now, who would benefit the most from having a shutdown? Well, I can tell you they did, was China. Yeah, and every single person that was complicit in it would then be, I would say, bribed essentially after the fact for their acquiesce, acquiescence to the electoral heist. Mm-hmm. Let's kind of step through how that looked. December 2019, the Wuhan incident, right? Or November, I should say. Mm-hmm. Because Trump was drawing quite a few crowds, right? Mm-hmm. And then we were going into the primary season and uh, Joseph Robinette Jeden wasn't looking too good, right? No. Nope. The support at that time, the following individuals had much more support than good old Joey Bribes. It was who? I would argue that Andrew Yang had more popular support than <laughs> Joey Bribes. Mm-hmm. Tulsi Gabbard had more support. And Bernie Sanders had way more support. Way more. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Warren had more support. Yep. But guess what? Joey Bribes has been around at that point for 40, 
seven years. Influence peddling all on the Biden criminal syndicate laptop was being leveraged so that by the time they, you know what? We still don't know who won the primary or the caucuses in Iowa in 2020 Mm -hmm. for the Democrats. Never was announced as far as I know. No, I don't think Joey bribes lost. And then in New Hampshire, he was decimated. So then the deep state sprung into action and they thought, hmm, good old Clyburn. We can probably do a little something, something. So anyway, as things were developing and Bernie was still going to probably pull it off again for a second time, because mm-hmm. he probably, he, he won in 16. won in 16 too. In yeah. 2020. Mm-hmm. So then they had to create this Wuhan incident in order to create the frame. So that's on the left. What was going on on the right? March of 2020. The shutdowns. Who was the one advocating and promulgating the policies as it relates to destroying America's economy? Two weeks to stop the spread. Fauci. Who was his boss? at the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. Uh, I can't think of her name, but yeah. No, no. It was Deborah Burks worked for Fauci. Mm -hmm. And who did they, both of them, report to? Who was the coronavirus, what they call Coronavirus Task Force lead? It was the same guy that said, Oh, me, 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 Mr. President, I want to be the White House Coronavirus Task Force lead Mm. so that I can provide cover to the deep state and only provide you information that we want you to have. So obviously, Pence. Voila. Mm -hmm. What's your response? (laughs) It's starting to make sense. Do you see why faux news didn't talk about this? Oh, sure. So that we would forget? Mm-hmm. Because Paul Ryan doesn't want you to know that. Mm-hmm. All the policies related to the CCP-19 lab incident and its progeny and its second and third order effects, I argue, stem from the decisions that were made by two people. Mike Pence and then the shadow governor, of that coronavirus task force, a guy by the name of, this is where it's going to be unpopular, but this is the truth. Jared Kushner. Hmm. Hmm. Don't believe me? Please look it up. And what role did they play in heading up the CCP-19 task force over at the White House? Well, for starters... They're the ones that decided who would get ventilators mm-hmm. and the contracts associated with that. Think money. And then the PPE that would be allocated and to whom and which states and which governors. And then the nose, the, the medical rape devices, such as the nose, some people call them the nose swabs, the PCR test, mm-hmm. the nose rape devices the face toilet allocation, which governors got what and which contracts were doled out. And then we started going into what? 
Well, let's take a look. If you take a look at which states did complete shutdowns and which didn't, well, let's only focus in on the Republican governors. Which Republican governors shut it down and are the closest aligned with Mikey Pence? New Jersey. Republican. Oh, Republican. Hmm. Think New Hampshire. Hmm. Sununu. Sununu, yeah. Think hmm. Georgia. Brian yeah, Kemp. True. Kemp. Think Dougie Fresh Ducey. Hmm. Arizona. See why some of these criminal indictments are coming against Trump from these states? Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? Yeah. It does to me. Mm-hmm. Plain, it's clear as day. Wow. The same individuals that are going to receive the retribution that they deserve are using their authority to stop from receiving the retribution Mm -hmm. and instead flipping the script and trying to concoct stuff. One thing I want to say, since it's in my head right now, the raid that was conducted on Mm Mar-a-Lago. It was in order to obtain the evidence that President Trump declassified that showcased Crossfire Hurricane. All the documents related to Crossfire Hurricane that would show exactly that Brian Auten, Joe Pienka, Jim Baker, Pete Strzok, Lisa Page, Catherine Seaman, all of them would have been exposed as part of that illegal spying operation going all the way up to and including Mike Pence is what I argue. They deployed to seize that information so that it would not be used as part of President Trump's RICO case against the DOJ and FBI as it relates to that. And then as well as it would have been used as part of General Flynn's RICO case against the FBI and the DOJ. The very criminal actors that raided Trump did so to protect their illegal criminality Hmm. with the documents he declassified. You've done a fascinating connecting the dots. I want somebody to prove me wrong, though. Yeah, well, I i mean, I would, too. I'd love to see that. You know, that would be uh, that would be an interesting discussion. Mike Pence, I'm available any day of the week, mm-hmm. any time of the day. Mm-hmm. All right. So shall I continue? Please. OK, so the same people that spied on Trump and did all the cover-ups, Mueller investigation, the whistleblower, Eric Cherimella, remember the Ukraine call? The Vinmans, the Eric Cherimellas, the Adam Schiff's. Basically, it was a time and sequence. They wanted to continue to... Oh, by the way, I didn't mention Andrew Weissman also. And then it's escalating and escalating. So by the time 2020 rolls around, they create this new... Uh, pandemic so that non-legislative actors 
And sometimes legislative actors can change the laws as well as the procedures and policies upon which an election is conducted so that an electoral outcome is created of their liking, even though it's illegal. Several states were involved in conducting and certifying an absolutely illegitimate and illegal 2020 election. Hmm. And guess who was censoring people like you and me? I know me for sure. I was number 18 on the FBI lies list, as I call it, really? of most, most feared accounts that expose their corruption. Wow. Yep. It You're was fabulous. the FBI lies surrogates <laughs> that were telling you, oh, wait, Constitution? Nah, we don't need no Constitution. Mm -hmm. What we really need is for you to shut up so that we can continue to steal and rape this country for everything that we need it to for, because not only are they protecting themselves, but if they're conducting this criminal lawless behavior, is it then a stretch to ask yourself, if they're willing to do this, who's providing their top them top cover, not only domestically, but internationally? Internationally, yeah. Let's let's ask some questions. Is it possible that John Kerry, Mr. Logan Act violator <laughs> extraordinaire, has a close relationship with Iran? Hmm. Duh. Why is that? <laughs> and what about Mr. McGonagall, the senior counter intel dude at the FBI's New York field office? Hmm. Guess he was taking a little bit of money from oligarchs from Russia. Hmm. But we don't know for sure because we have to wait for the trial to take place. Uh-huh. Who else was taking money from foreign entities? Well, for starters, the guy that stole the election. Mm -hmm. The Chinese Communist Party's ambassador himself, also dual-hatted as Big Pharma's brand ambassador. I present to you Joseph Robinette Jiden. China's ambassador to the U.S., squatting in the White House and defiling it. And every single person he is appointed downstream from him is what? Is a sub-agent of China. Hmm. How do we know this? Well, because good old Biden receives five, ten, etc., cetera, million dollars per deal. Not only that, he's getting 10% for the big guy himself. Mm -hmm. Is he getting 10% for the big guy in every China deal, every Ukraine deal? And why is he getting money from Moscow's mayor, uh, or excuse me, his Moscow mayor's wife? Our current executive branch is fully illegitimate and lawless. Off the rails, completely off the rails. Now, let's contextualize that. Both parties, as I've laid out. I think I made the case, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. At the highest levels. And I I, I have to tell you, even though I've uh, been very high up in the Republican Party in Montana, state of Montana, it's not because I believe in the Republican Party. It's because they're the least corrupt of the two, and I thought there might be a chance we could 
pull off cleaning up the party, but obviously I was wrong, and I've given up on that too. So I would I would beg to differ. There is a way. Let me kind of present now and context. Right, let me kind of wrap everything in a bow tie here. Okay. If you agree with my assessment, you kind of see where our enemies are. The very first thing we have to focus in on is to go after and neutralize the enemies from within so that we can secure a primary, right? Mm -hmm. Before we can go after the, so you have the enemies within the Republican party. You have the enemies within the current trifect, well, not trifect anymore within the Democrat party. And then our global actors remember hundred, basically 99.9% .9 of political power in the U S is between Democrat and Republican party and everybody at the senior leadership positions within all executive branch departments was appointed by right. A Democrat or Republican. So we have mm -hmm. to unravel that ground up. One way to do it is ground up, meaning precinct County. You know, there's a guy that was on Bannon precinct strategy. There's the whole local action has a national impact that general friend Flynn is talking about. And here is what the enemy in my estimation is going to do. So we like to say in intelligence, you want to identify what your enemy's most probable course of action is and most dangerous course of action. Now I'm going to try to present those. And if you want to add or disagree, Dan, please, by all means do so. I suspect, remember I said, Mike Pence, they're going to steal it for him. Let me go into some details. Mike Pence served his role, right? He doled out contracts at a massive scale initially. And then when the electoral heist and steal was done, Nancy Pelosi, then after the fact, doled out, what is it? The $7 trillion or whatever it was, $3 trillion budget. And those that received the hearty majority of the federal $3 trillion COVID relief package was those states, cities, and loca localities and entities that participated in the electoral heist. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you start mm -hmm. to follow the money, hmm, very coincidental. And the businesses and companies that benefited the most, which was, I consider, the biggest transfer of wealth ever in human history, particularly in the United States, every mom and pop private small business was told to shut down pretty much nationwide to include these Republican state governors, right? That I mentioned here, right? And uh, so they benefited. So for his, for his good deeds and for then certifying a lawless and illegitimate election by not even having a quorum of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate to take place on January 6th because Mike Pence said, oh, I don't care about the 12th Amendment quorum requirement. It doesn't concern me. What does concern me is that we can't object Nancy, go ahead and facilitate this unlawful entry into the Capitol by not having any security around the Capitol. I'm going to make sure there's no quorum. And uh, the country is going to basically not even remember that there were objections made to the six contested mm -hmm. states. And instead of allowing these House members and senators to object and showcase to the whole world that it was an illegally conducted and illegally certified election in order to trigger the 12th Amendment and having a re-election of Trump, 
Rather than do that, let's go ahead and create an insurrection. Mm-hmm. And oh boy, the Nancy, go ahead and contact Yogananda Pittman, head of Intel and Interagency Coordination Division at U.S. Capitol Police to make sure that everything is done properly. Make sure that the general counsel of the U.S. Capitol Police is the one that provides cover in the documents and then also potentially manipulates all the criminal charges and the CCTV footage before it's sent over the DOJ for prosecution. Okay. Sounds good, Nancy. Cool. Let's elbow bump each other. Mm-hmm. So that's what Mikey Pence does with Nancy Pelosi. You want the deep dive on that? I do a two hour deep dive <laughs> discussion on that on my, uh, on my rakeland.com website. You can see. I will. I actually, I, we're going to, this is fascinating. We're going to run out of time to get, everything done i'd love to have you back no no i have a few minutes oh yeah you've got plenty of time yet but uh i i just want to let you know i am fascinated you are welcome back on my podcast (laughs) thank you thank you any yeah we can go into the j6 deep dive my investigations into january 6th and all the criminal actors involved because that's a different different group than what i've been kind of playing out yeah but there's some overlap also all right so the heist happens, and Mike Pence, well, guess what? You're thinking to yourself, Mike Pence doesn't even have a constituency. He was asked last week, you know, who, who is a Mike Pence constituency when he was interviewed by one of these mainstream media uh, platforms that obviously give him carte blanche whenever he wants to, to you know, spout mm-hmm. off his rhetoric and 0% charisma and his 0% support. He couldn't answer that question because there is no constituency that supports Mike Pence. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they're actually, I'm mistaken when I say that there is one, those that benefited from Mike Pence's CCP 19 task force, when he was on the task force policies, that's his constituency. Let's, mm-hmm. let's go through some key ones. Paul Ryan. Does Paul Ryan have the ability to put Mike Pence on the biggest lemming conservative platform still? Absolutely. Probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, in order to secure the nomination, you have to make sure that you have leverage over the electoral system, right? Not only the machines, but the electoral college process for the general election. So let's take a look at the primary going into 2024. What did Paul Ryan and Rupert Murdoch do with deviant voting systems a couple months ago. Didn't they just provide them with what they call as a settlement, what I call a bribe in the tune Mm -hmm. of $787 million. And as part of that settlement, is it possible that they agreed to, Hey, here's almost $800 million deviant voting systems. In return, we want to secure the outcome of the primary in the 28 states that you operate in. Again, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. Mm. I'm just throwing out some ideas and opinions in my personal capacity on if that's, if it's, it's essentially a question. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that that was a bribe? Oh yeah. To secure an electoral outcome of their choosing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a possibility. I'm not quite sure. I want somebody to answer that question. Yeah. And I would like to see the settlement agreement so that it proves me wrong to even have the gall to ask the question. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Okay. Well, you're thinking, well, okay, let's let's make the assumption that that's a true statement. But we'll just go ahead and go to court and litigate. There's no way they can steal this thing from Mike Pence. Well, here's where I give you the second component. Not only is faux news going to manipulate and coerce the country into believing that Mike Pence just won the election because they're going to give him extra, you know, every poll that comes out, mm-hmm. faux news is just going to amplify it every day. Oh, look, Mike Pence is at 2%. Oh, this week he's at 3%. And now at 4 and now at 5 right? So in the court of public Republican opinion on phone faux news, they're going to make it look like it's a legitimate increase in support for Mikey Pence. And then guess who Paul Ryan's best friend is over in Wisconsin? A guy by the name of Robin Voss, the longest standing speaker of the house in the country, speaker of the house of Wisconsin, who's on the, who's the president of the national conference of state legislatures, the body that gets to influence the state legislatures, particularly Republican-majority state legislatures, to pass laws that would make it more favorable for an electoral outcome of their choosing. Hmm. How long have I been telling people that this is what they're going to do? It was before last year's primary, because if they won and secured a re-election, they would make it happen. But because no one listens to me, I guess just watch it play out how I said it was going to play out back in the spring of 2022, because no, they didn't want to endorse Robin Voss's opponent in the primary until literally halfway through the electoral season. And that's how he was able to secure a victory of 260 ballots. Mm -hmm. Had we removed Robin Voss, we wouldn't be in this precarious position, but we are. So what do we do? You have, so this is what they're going to do. The adjudicative outcome is going to be decided by the machines. That adjudicative outcome will not be appealable because the state legislatures in these states are going to say, whatever the outcome of the machine is, there's no appeal. You guys just have to take it and accept it by law. So they're going to legally lock in the steel. What states mm-hmm. you're asking? Well, New Hampshire for one. Right. Virginia, should the Virginia secure a trifecta in November? Also, Arizona, potentially, because they just removed one of the biggest advocates, but we might be able to block that from occurring. We'll see. Georgia, definitely. Wisconsin, definitely. And Pennsylvania, possibly. And Nebraska. So, what does that mean? That means a victory in the primary, right? For Pence, if they play this out. But what about in the general election? Well, Virginia has 13 electoral votes, Wisconsin 10, Georgia 16, and New Hampshire 4. Let's add those up. 10 plus 16 is 26, plus 13 is 39, plus 4 is 43. Wait. 43 electoral votes. Hmm. That secures the press. Oh, and New Hampshire, excuse me, Nebraska. That's one additional. 44 electoral votes that flip 
Mikey Pence. Because hmm. who controls those electoral systems? Brian Kemp, Georgia? You think he's going to do anything to support Trump? Hmm. No way. What hmm. about Robin Voss in Wisconsin? It's a little different. It's not the governor that controls the Wisconsin Election Commission. It's the Speaker of the House that decides who's uh, who's on the elect Wisconsin election commission to then decide the outcome of the electoral systems and how they're going to run the elections. So you got Robin Voss controlling 10, you got Brian Kemp controlling 16 electoral votes. You got Sununu controlling four electoral votes. And then you got Glenn Youngkin controlling 13 electoral votes after they probably will steal it in favor of Republicans this year. Now let's talk about Youngkin. Is it true that Youngkin was the co-CEO of Carlisle and the co-founder of Carlisle, Dave Rubenstein, provided the biggest capital infusion into Staple Street Capital in October of 2020, right as they purchased de deviant voting systems wow. in October of 2020? Please fact check me. Wow. And then why was it the same month when that purchase took place that Glenn Youngkin decided to retire hmm. and then run for governor of Virginia. And is why is it that one third of the counties in Virginia use deviant voting systems? And I'm not sure, but is it true that in those counties, Youngkin did better? Hmm. I don't know. Something to look into. Yeah. Wow. Ah, so to close it up, God. what do we do now that we've identified the problem? You want I'm me to ready. that? I'm ready. <laughs> Come on, talk to us. Okay. So we need to counter the legislative change, right? Mm-hmm. We need to counter faux news and we need to counter Mikey Pence's relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So this is how we do it. I think we uh, expose Mike Pence by continuing to scrutinize everything he's done in the last two decades and expose that. But you say, well, where do we do that? Well, that's where... Tucker Carlson comes into play. Tucker Carlson and the rest of us needs to go the way of Tucker Carlson in the sense that we cancel faux news. What just happened is Tucker Carlson, it wasn't faux news that canceled Tucker. It was Tucker that canceled faux news. And we need to reject, we need to bankrupt that organization. I agree. I agree. Zero eyeballs need to be had on that platform. I don't care how great and how it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear someone because you like them in Congress, et cetera, and they're only going on phone news, you need to tell them, get off of that organization's disinformation purveying platform and then go and do an interview somewhere else. Like, Oh, I don't know. Go on with Dan Happel of connecting mm -hmm. the dots radio show. Okay. Or other ones. If you're producing content on commie tube, guess what? Block. I will consume you on rumble though. Oh wait, you want to go on fake book block. 
How about mm-hmm. you go on Truth Social or Telegram? And depending on what Twitter does, Twitter 2.0, you want to start playing that censorship game again? Guess what? Block. Mm-hmm. Gone. You no longer have my attention because you just tried to stop me from exercising my First Amendment. I don't care who you are, Elon Musk, Malan Isk, it doesn't matter. You censor me, block. Mm -hmm. And so when we have the information landscape at our disposal with the attention of the world and the country, we can then advocate for certain things like, hey, state legislature in Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Virginia, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nebraska. We're going to one day in-person paper ballot, hand count, voter ID. Anything else unacceptable, we will remove you. And the way we force your removal is that we're going to take over both political parties. You want to play this one the uniparty deep state game, guess what? You be the China first Democrats and the China first Republicans. We are now going to supplant you with candidates and members of both political parties with America first Democrats and America first Republicans. Mm -hmm. How do we start that process? Tucker's already started it. Number one, my recommendation to Tucker Carlson if he's listening, is, sir, you need to host a pre- a series of presidential um, forums, presidential candidate forums, mm-hmm. where you discuss a different I- issue each time. And the only candidates that must be present at this forum are the following three. And you're going to live stream this on Twitter, Rumble, and truth social number one rfk jr rfk jr is going to bring in a lot of people basically every single non-bot non-ai algorithm that didn't vote for joseph robinette jeden in 2020 all the rest of them are going to want to watch this forum to include the remember he drew a million people when he spoke in europe during the uh, lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suspect that those that physically showed up the million are a representation of probably a hundred million globally right. that would want to watch solely RFK Jr. on Tucker on Twitter. What about number two? The second candidate that needs to be present in that forum is Vivek Ramaswamy. And you mm-hmm. ask why? Well, We're trying to reject China first. So Mm -hmm. let's bring in somebody that can draw the 1.3 billion Indians of the planet that speak English, right? Vivek Ramaswamy background is from India. Mm -hmm. I would suspect that probably three to 400 million Indians would want to tune in as they listen in to Vivek Ramaswamy. Okay, And the last candidate that I would recommend Tucker have on during this presidential candidate forum series would be President Trump. 
Here's what happens. You have an entire global attention platform that not only increases those tech platforms that aren't censoring, it totally rejects and bankrupts the mainstream big tech, the legacy media in one shot, right? Hmm. Think about this. You're going to have 500 million people just tuning in globally because you've already seen that Tucker by himself, when he puts out these little tweets, videos, he's getting over 100, 110 million views, right? Yeah, he's getting a tremendous viewership. Which mm -hmm. is uh, 10 to 50 fold what faux news gets. Mm -hmm. That will be the mechanism to educate the constituents within the Republican Party and the Democrat Party to wake up from the FBI curated and manipulated big tech and big media content that they were forced into the last few years. And in that, in that uh, ecosystem, they're, they're going to be able to educate the country of what just happened with the lockdowns, you know, with RFK Jr. being the only of the candidates that's out there that got it right, in my opinion, on everything related to, you know, he wrote the book on the real Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. he's going to be able to educate the country at scale even more than he did with Joe Rogan. He'll be now considered serious to get to the truth. Vivek is going to be able to, you know, uh, get, uh, reach out to folks that normally don't know about truth social, right? Because remember, it's going to be mm -hmm. live stream on truth social and branded. So then truth social becomes essentially along with Twitter, the top two social media platforms. And then you have rumble, that's live streaming it as well, which removes mm -hmm. people off of CommyTube. And now you have a another platform, video platform, that is competing with CommyTube, which is only good. And so everyone is elevated mm -hmm. in that process. The conversation is elevated, and we destroy and obliterate faux news. And part of that conversation is essentially to get the people to demand the state legislatures go to one day in-person paper ballot, hand count, voter ID mm -hmm. with the justification behind it as they explain that the 2020 and then the 2022 election was completely raw dog stolen from the people. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I can tell you I'm in 100% in favor of that. Um, I very definitely have, I have said for the last three years, the only way we're going to see another honest election is same day, show up in person at the precinct level, voted and counted at the precinct level with hand counted paper ballots and valid IDs. That's the only way that we're ever going to get an honest election. And it can't be counted by computers. Screw that counting by computer thing. I mean, I interviewed a guy that wrote the book called Vote Scam. He testified before the U.S. Senate in 1992 that if they ever adopted computerized voting, they'd never have another honest election. Now, how do we think some uh, 31, 32 years later that we're going to have an honest election? I mean, that's stupid. We need to get back to paper ballots, hand counted at the precinct level with valid ID. I agree. So for those people that don't believe 
that elections aren't corrupt for the, I should say for the Chris Krebs of the world that say the 2020 election was the most safe and secure election <laughs> ever in the history of American ever. politics. Never before has the human race experienced such an, such a pristine election as the mm. one conducted in 2020. I'd like to refer to you a book by Congressman Troy Nels. It's called The Big Fraud. He outlines the history of voter fraud in America over the last 150 years. Mm -hmm. It's occurred pretty much in every election. Mm -hmm. But this time around, it was so blatant, they had to cover it hard. Because not only did China want to make sure that they got their guy in, the same individuals that provided that cover, as I outlined and explained, were the same ones that did the illegal spying that were involved in the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago to be able to seize those documents that would have exposed them. Every single subsequent cover-up is to cover up the previous cover-up, and it only escalates in its level of egregiousness. Exactly. And it's only going to continue to escalate. So I laid out to you the most probable course of action. And I explained to you what I think the best strategy to counter their most probable course of action is. Mm -hmm. I didn't talk yet about the, their most dangerous course of action. And it kind of goes back to how I opened up the show. Okay. We are in a moment where the 1770s meets the 1860s meets the 1960s. If they allow us to do if they continue down their most likely course of action, then we're going to be okay. We're going to start to continue to claw back our country. If they decide that they don't want secretary of retribution to create the necessary consequences for them, they're going to move into their most dangerous course of action. And that's going to look like what they did to the Kennedys and Martin Luther King Jr. in the sixties. Mm -hmm. And I won't articulate what the strategy is against that. Well, yeah. And I believe me, there are other people talking in similar ways to you because we you don't see, know what I'm thinking and talking. Well, about. I think I've got a pretty good idea. No, I reject, <laughs> I reject anything that you. Okay. All right. Well, all right, let's leave it at that. All I can tell you is that there are a lot of people in this country that are concerned enough about what's been happening that uh, if they start pulling the plug, that there's going to be some people that are going to be there to make sure they don't let that happen. Well, let's just, let me close with this. When you look at the statute, and if you look at FBI's own website, as it describes domestic terrorism and what domestic terrorism is, mm -hmm. that organization has been ruthlessly conducting, by its own definition, domestic terrorist activity. No question. And more recently, the DHS has been complicit in that. I'll give you a few examples. When they raided Roger Stone. That's called kidnapping. Okay. Mm -hmm. When they conducted armed robbery of Mike Lindell in a Hardee's parking lot, 
when they did similar armed robbery and larceny of John Eastman in a parking lot, when they did armed robbery of a Congress sitting member of Congress, Scott Perry, chair of the House Freedom Caucus. This FB lie is lawless and illegitimate. So maybe this new House of Representatives, six months in now, is going to be motivated by the people to go ahead and shut it down. Mm -hmm. I hope Shut so. down the National Security Division, the National Security Branch, the FISA process. It needs to be castrated. And then we can start castrating the rest of these lawless actors. Mm -hmm. They want yeah. to promote mutilation? Well, guess what? Maybe they need to start with themselves. Ivan, you, you've pointed out something that's so incredibly important is that we, as a nation, we need to grow a backbone and to realize that the only reason a bully gets away with being a bully is because we let him. And if we start fighting back and we start saying absolutely no, we're not going to put up with your bullshit anymore. And you know where we, just, gonna we just actually won on that front? The New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, arrested nine New Hampshire residents that stood silently with their back to him at an executive council meeting on October 13th of 2021. All of them said, great, we're going to trial and you are our first mm -hmm. witness. Mm. The day before the trial for Therese, one of the New Hampshire nine, mm -hmm. five minutes before close of business, they dropped charges. And as of Friday, he dropped charges on all the rest of them, all seven of them, or actually eight of them, and one is appealing one of it. And July 17th, I'm doing an event in New Hampshire, and I'm also challenging Governor Sununu to a charity boxing match. I saw that. Yeah, I love it. I would love it for him to bully me in the ring. I want him to intimidate, bully, whatever in the ring. Instead of going after women and children that are exercising their First Amendment at the executive council meeting, how about he go ahead and bully me? And I, I've been training every day, and I've been posting it on my social media. Uh, so right after this interview, <laughs> I'm probably going to go for an, a run or a bike, a swim, probably all three, mm -hmm. as I increase my cardio. And then I'm going to start sparring probably next week. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that's good. That's exactly how we're going to win our country back. We've got to be bold. We've got to be brave. And we've got to be willing to put our lives on the line for our great republic. Because if we're not willing to give our lives for our country, then we're not worth a shit. Hey, Dan, I have, yes. a, I have a question for Ivan. Uh, you've mentioned the new news several times, Ivan. Uh, are you uh, paying any attention to the uh, Mike Gill uh, stuff coming out uh, uh, in New Hampshire and involving Sununu. Yes, I've seen some of his work. Uh, I've looked at some of the podcasts. I've listened to a few of the podcasts. Uh, yep. Your your thoughts? Mm, I mean, he's been doing research. Mm -hmm. Seems to have some pretty solid info. 
I would like to have a sit down with him if he would afford that opportunity just to kind of go through it all. If that's something that he would be willing to do, I would be happy to do though. Okay. I, I've got a feeling, um, I've got to make, make some connections, uh, Ivan with you and some other people that I know you need to be, uh, getting a lot of platforms on the, you know, on, on this alternate media, you need to have a lot more platforms than, than you have now. Because what you're talking about is incredible. It's important. And you connect the dots in ways that I haven't even begun to do as far as the FBI and the the sleazeballs in Congress and all these connections between what they've been doing behind the scenes. This is dynamite stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to – I just want to remind everybody, this show is uh, being simulcast on my Rumble channel oh. and will be archived there. That's number 14 on Rumble, along with my shows. Uh, you can get this show and uh, download it, share it, or do whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, I think this is going to be a, a, a great show. Thank you, Ivan. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Right. If I may, uh, so if folks want to actually take a look in written form detail, uh, I do have a Substack where I actually go into several kind of branches and sequels of some of the discussions that we've had so far. Uh, it goes into kind of the Uniparty's plan to steal the 2024 election for Mike Pence that I laid out, but in a little bit more detail. I also have several that discuss the one of them is called Nancy. Is it the was it the Nancy Rection instead of the Fed's Rection? <laughs> yeah because uh we talk about j6 uh, i go into a deep dive and again i want to let people know that the evidence that i bring forth is not only what can be obtained publicly i also talk to whistleblowers you know whether it be former secretaries of defense or uh former capitol police chief so it's not just fly-by-night sources these are the highest level sources you can have to be able to shape uh, an assessment. So have you, uh, just talked throw it with, out there. have you talked with, uh, uh, Stephen friend, or have you talked with, uh, uh, Terry Turchy, some of the guys like that? I'll, I'll try to make some connections, uh, if I can, because that's the biggest dots we connect are the people so that the people. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think we're, w once we all kind of collaborate and compare notes, we will be able to more fully get to the truth with a lot higher confidence. Well, and it gives us uh, the strength of numbers in a coordinated effort. Mm-hmm. It really does. So I'll do what yeah, I so can. During the, in that when regard. Steve Friend was testifying before Congress, I was sitting right behind him, Where along you, with the other, yeah, all the other whistleblowers. Absolutely. Yeah, I try to attend all those hearings so that I can. I'm up in Congress almost every day, trying to help wow. um, support what they should be doing. Well, I'll tell you what, you're an um, American uh, hero. And I don't mean that to, you know, make you uh, embarrassed or feel big-headed. But the fact is, is that all of us who are right now trying to expose the fact that the emperor has no clothes, and not only does he have no clothes, uh, he may very well be uh, uh, bi bisexual or 
uh, transgender because he doesn't seem to have the right equipment either. Yeah, I mean, he basically is wearing a, uh, maybe I'll use this phrase. He's wearing a Chinese Communist Party flag G-string on backwards. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Ivan, thank you for being our guest. Uh, I'm going to have you back. Uh, Can I I contact you? Uh, Incidentally, I sent you an email. If you wouldn't mind, text me or send me a phone number that I could call you on. I won't give it to anybody. I promise. And it's, uh, it's already out there. I've been doxxed so many times. It doesn't matter. Unfortunately, you know, they haven't, I always like to teach things. And uh, there was one person that wanted, wanted me to educate them on the second amendment, but he quickly decided not to provide me that opportunity. Why don't you do that with uh, Ryan Zinke? Because, uh, Congressman Zinke from Montana doesn't have a clue what the Second Amendment is, and he supposedly, uh, he always says that he was the commander of SEAL Team 6. Well, he was a lieutenant commander in supply with SEAL Team 6, and his commander says he's a piece of work. So let's just leave it at that. He's not on any of the committees of consequence that I'm dealing and interacting with. So the likelihood of me engaging with him, I, I don't, I don't know much about him other than he's a seal. Uh, I don't have anything negative to say about him at this moment. Well, that, that, and that's probably good. I will just tell you, I know uh, Ryan well enough to know that uh, every time I, sh- I see him, if I had to shake his hand, I'd be counting my fingers on the, on the way back. No, I think the consequential committees right now that that people should be focused on, at least I am, is judiciary, weaponization, the uh, committee on the CCP, the Oversight and Investigations Committee, the House Administration Committee, Armed Services, Intel, and then the last one is the origins. They call it the origins of COVID. Basically, it's it's the CCP-19 Wuhan incident oversight subcommittee (laughs) Mm -hmm. good name for it so those are the ones that i'm interacting with the most members as well as staff to help provide my research to be able to shape uh and essentially educating the country through these hearings so that we can let's face it when you educate the country uncensored on c-span you are now impacting judges and the jury pool to be able to actually create judicial outcomes that are legitimate based on fact and evidence, as opposed to the curated, manipulated, censored garbage that those that spied on Trump are making sure that the country only knows about. So that that's, it's the court of public opinion that we have to make sure is educated so that the rest of our institutions start to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Very well put. All right. Okay. Ivan, oh, thank by the you. way, I don't know if you can read that. It's a little blurry. It is a little blurry. What does it say? I don't know why. It says here, we do not consent. We will not comply. Hashtag F-A-F-O. <laughs> Some people call it fool around, find out. Mm-hmm. But there's also another word that mm-hmm. others there's use. There's another one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
Thank you, my friend. Great talking <laughs> to you. Love it. Appreciate uh, you guys. God bless you. Do, do, God keep bless doing you. what you're doing. All right. <laughs> and have a wonderful uh, Independence Day. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land